everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Um, welcome to this amazing podcast webinar that we're going to do, and we are really blessed to have Tim with us here from Rancho Mastatal and in Costa Rica. And any of you that know me well know that Costa Rica has a very soft spot spot in my heart. I'll throw out another name for you, Tim. Tim and I were just sort of talking a little bit before. Uh, Richard Lackey, do you know that name? Yeah, the name rings a bell, but I don't know how to connect it. He built the largest zip line system in the world right there um, in on the coast, um, just south of uh, of Capos and, and uh and you know, in the in that area, and he also he also used to own a hotel right there in uh, along the along the beach. So, uh, and he's a he's a Coloradan, and for most of his year, and so I met him here, and and uh, we actually have done some shrimp farming together in in an aquaculture setting. So, very cool. Yeah. Well, again, Tim is in Costa Rica. I'm going to start with that. It sounds like he's not right at his ranch today, but why don't you start by telling us about sort of where your ranch is, a little bit about your history and and what got you excited about doing this and and where'd you come from and so on. Just to, just give us a little bit of your biography. Sure. Yeah. Um Rachamasta tell uh has been around for over 20 years now uh, we started our project in 2001 in a small rural community named Mastata. it's a small town of about 100 people uh, about an hour north of the central pacific coast in costa rica uh, our property borders uh, a national park named uh, la cangreja most of our property is protected as a private wildlife refuge. We have a property with an area of about 300 acres, 120 hectares, something like that, almost all of which is set aside as a private wildlife refuge. With the part that's not the 15 or so acres that we uh, have our built infrastructure on and food production on, we run an education center um, and a working farm. Uh, the ranch is also a home for a number of people that live there uh, year-round. Um, I moved to Costa Rica in 2001 to essentially start the project. Uh, I came through the Peace Corps, my wife and I. Uh, my wife's name is Robin Nunes. We met in the Peace Corps in Uruguay in 1994. I was an agribusiness volunteer. I worked with a small group of organic farmers. Down there, she worked for a small environmental nonprofit. Um, and upon returning to the US, uh, we moved to the Pacific Northwest and we were always open to the possibility of at some point returning 
to uh, Latin America. I have a degree in agricultural economics uh, from a university on the East Coast. I have had a couple of gigs in the corporate world. I worked for Chiquita, my first uh, big job out of college. I was a marketing analyst there. Um, escaped to the Peace Corps, went back into the corporate world to go to work for a company called Vanguard Trading. They're a large exporter of fruits out of the Pacific Northwest, and that's kind of how I landed uh, in Seattle. Uh, and then after you know a few more years in the in the corporate world, it wasn't a great fit for me either time. The first time or the second time, I um, kind of you know told my told myself that um, I was going to start you know pursuing opportunities that better fit with my personality and what it was that I was hoping to do uh, with my life. And so uh, Robin and I started to brainstorm about what that could look like. Uh, we had become increasingly interested in topics related to the environment, food production, agricultural, natural building, wilderness medicine, kind of a lot of the topics that we now focus on as an education center. Uh, and around 2000, a friend of mine from the Peace Corps uh, got a hold of me and told me about this property in Costa Rica. Uh, my wife and I had decided to leave the Seattle area and we were looking to move to Oregon, the Hood River area. And during that transition, this opportunity came up to explore this opportunity in Mastatal. And so my wife and I jumped onto a plane with our friend Dan and we came and looked at the property where we now live. Um, beautiful property, but, you know, very rural. There weren't any phones uh, in the community. When we moved there, in fact, the first 10 years, we were without phones, without internet. The roads were uh, quite poor, difficult to access, um, which I guess made the, the property affordable to us at that point in our lives. But anyway, we decided to, to move forward with the idea of relocating to Costa Rica. We uh, put together uh, the finances and we were able to purchase the property that has been our home now for the last almost 22 years. Um, so as I mentioned, we're an education center, we're a home, uh, we're a working farm. It's a pretty dynamic uh, program. We have a year long apprenticeship, a two month internship. We host a wide array of courses and workshops uh, having to do with natural building, agroforestry, medicinal plants, permaculture, wilderness medicine, kind of all topics that I would fit under the permaculture or sustainability umbrella. That's kind of what, what we do. Um, and yeah, my wife and I have a 14-year-old girl. She was born in Costa Rica. She's a dual citizen as as I am now and as is my wife. And yeah, Costa Rica has been home for us now for, for a few decades and uh, we plan on it being home for us for the foreseeable future. So hopefully that's kind of a, a good brief overview for the listeners to get an idea as to what's going on um, in Mastatal and at Rancho Mastatal. Very cool. Um, tell us, uh how uh, how how are we that live in this 
regenerative world mentality, worldview? How are we doing against the the doles of the world and and the uh, the others that are that are trying to still farm and ranch in Costa Rica? And this is now just with a Costa Rican. So with your Costa Rican uh, bias, how are we doing? In your in your opinion, so are well, are the kinds of things you're teaching having having an impact on more than just the individuals involved? Because I I get I, I worry at times. And an example, um, a guy that I I respect, John Bush, who's doing what's called the Exit and Build Strategy Workshop this week. His his email he sent out yesterday was I'm quitting. I'm going to work for mattress firm. And and it was a joke, mm -hmm. but still, yeah, it's easy to get that feeling at times. So anyway, back to my question: What is your thoughts? Yeah, indeed, um, all of that um, and more. Um, I think we have the the luxury, the privilege of kind of being surrounded by a lot of good work positive people, people coming through, kind of looking for what it is that we are offering. So surrounded by a fair amount of optimism in a world that's gone crazy, um, that has plenty of issues. Uh, the poor internet that we have up at the ranch, as I was saying earlier, is, is a blessing and a burden. I do keep in touch with what is going on globally uh, in the world. But I think with the slow internet, it doesn't give me the opportunity to go too deep into the doom and gloom narrative that has become so common in the news cycle. Um, able to stay away from that a little bit and the paralysis that that sometimes brings to people. Um, I do acknowledge a lot of the big social environmental challenges of our time as i said i have a 14 year old girl and so i have a stake in this game and uh, part of the reason why i continue to be so involved and passionate about this work is that you know i i have a kid who is going to hopefully be living in this world 50 60 80 years down the road and i want it to be a world that is livable um, and I certainly am concerned whether that will be the case or not, but the work that we're doing also addresses that. And so even though the doom and gloom narrative is real, I think for me, the antidote is um, engaging in what I find to be meaningful work and work that changes lives and transforms people. Um, I think our greatest export by far is the the people that leave the ranch after going through a transformational educational program and go on to take that inspiration the knowledge that they learn the information and apply it elsewhere i think those ripples are spreading globally all over the place we've had many thousands of people run through our our programs over the years uh, the impact that it's had locally is easier for me to witness it's tangible you can see the improvements in our community, the development of a middle class, uh, a small rural community that's actually growing, that's actually thriving in a world where most small rural towns are depopulating and, and disappearing. 
Um, you know, is it enough? I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I can't grasp all of the the big the biggest issues of our time. I don't have the intellectual capacity. I don't believe, and at the end of the day, I don't know how it's all going to shake out. And without knowing, I leave a window of hope inside my heart and my head. And in the meantime, what I can do is just try to do the good work of regenerating the soils that we work on, regenerating the community that I live in, uh, giving my daughter an upbringing that will allow her to navigate um, a difficult and changing world. Um, but at the end of the day, we've created a great spot to live and raise a kid and and create community and bring people in to hopefully see that it's possible. I think that also is some of our best work, just creating an example, a, a working successful example of a an agroforestry farm, a permaculture farm, a community that has now over 20 years experience. Uh, if the demand for our programs has anything to say about the level of interest in these type of topics, I would have to say that it's increasing because our programs are extremely popular. Um, and I think more and more people really are looking for alternatives like the ones that we offer, uh, again, in a world that that's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit crazy right now and people are desperate, I think, in many cases to be able to recalibrate their brains, recalibrate their bodies and find new ways to um, engage in meaningful work that actually does make uh, a positive difference. Awesome. What, um, what would you describe sort of in a one sentence as to what type of business activity you're engaged in. And I'll give an example of what you've been called, and you can either just agree that that's what is appropriate, which is a sustainable living energy farm. That's one thing that you would see that, that people would label you as. Do you have, is that work? Is that is that the right one? Or is there something better to describe what you do? Yeah, I think that's accurate. We're we're an education center. That's um, how we pay the bills. Uh, really, at the end of the day, we do have other economic uh, uh, activities that provide us with revenue and income. But our main source of revenue and income are our workshops and our educational uh, offerings. So people come and pay to to stay with us and learn about natural building, for example, and that's what allows uh, to pay the bills. But as I said earlier, we're, we're more than that too. We, we live where we work um, and we're a working farm even though we are not a commercial farm. We don't make a living from the sales of anything that we grow. It is a very important part of, uh, of our personality, of our character, who we are uh, as an organization. So I realize that was more than one sentence. I apologize, but I think the term that you used is fair and, and accurate. How much of the food that you eat from day to day, week to week, comes from the farm versus 
or and not even from the farm, the, the region, rather than being imported from 1,500, 2,000, 5,000 miles away. Yeah, I appreciate that you, you caught that and differentiated that uh, before finishing the question, because that's a question that we do field uh, fairly frequently. And really from the beginning, the way that we have defined um, local foods has been not only what we're growing on our farm, but what we are able to buy, you know, from within a few miles of our farm through supporting uh, farmers in our area in a landscape that's quite frankly seen uh, a large, um, you know, a large uh, decrease in the number of farms. Farms just aren't able to make it uh, uh, as easily as they used to be able to, or kids are going to school and not taking on the farming activities of families. So we are extremely dedicated to buying local. We essentially will buy any foodstuffs that come to our door from any local farmers. We get, depending on the time of the year, between 80 and 90% of our calories from uh, our region. And I know that is defined differently based on where you're at, but um, we define that as about 10 miles, 10 mile radius from where we are. Uh, there are certain compromises that we do make. Certainly, we make plenty of compromises and something we talk a lot about in our work, the acknowledgement that we're in a transition period and that we're unable to do everything perfectly from one day to the next. And as we transition to hopefully a more compassionate paradigm, uh, we need to, you know, navigate this road uh, as we walk it and sometimes that involves um, you know bringing in some wheat flour for an occasional pizza party wheat does not grow where we are but uh, we do stay connected to our culinary traditions and what it is that uh, makes us happy when we eat it and so certainly we're making compromises but on the other hand uh, we're extremely committed to supporting local farmers and i think we are by far the largest agricultural consumer in our area. And um, I think it's one of the, 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 I guess the biggest impacts that we have locally, I think is just uh, being able to support so many small businesses, formal and informal in our community through the way that we, we operate. How about on the, um, the, the natural build side? Um, you, you teach courses and do workshops related to natural building and such, which is very cool. What, um, what's your energy supply? How has that changed over time? And how does that relate to um, just, again, to somewhat to your, your, your geography and ecology, but, but also to just what you've been able to do without having to rely on sources long far away and such yeah totally and in the natural building world the story is somewhat similar we do make compromises we live in an area with a lot of earthquakes uh, so we do use cement in our foundations we build pretty conventional foundations but we do minimize the amount of cement while justifying the quantities that we do use to make sure that the natural materials uh, that we do have that make up the vast majority of our of our houses stay there for as long as possible. 
Uh, the roofs that we use are mainly metal, an industrialized process to make those metal sheets. But essentially, if you come and, and stay in one of our cabins, in one of our houses, everything between the, the concrete foundations and the metal roofs are made from materials that we source uh, locally or at worst regionally. So we get all of our wood locally and we get all of our earth right from our property, all of the sand is local, all of the fiber is local. Um, so we do, I think, excel in that uh, field. Uh, we've been building naturally now for 20 years. It's one of our um, strong suits, it's one of our fortes, um, and something that we've gotten uh, very good at, I would say. So we're building structures that most people wouldn't be able to to you know tell the difference between that and a and a concrete building outside of the comfort level and the softness of the floors because they're earthen and so uh, we have been able to attain an aesthetic that's comparable to a very well-built conventional home but using materials uh, right from our region uh, as far as the energy world, we are connected to the grid at the ranch. Uh, we are uh, in the process of putting solar, uh, not in the process, but in the discussion phase of putting solar uh, on a new structure that we'll be building next year. Um, we have been connected to the grid. We have a number of off-grid installations on cabins that are farther away from the services that we have. Um, but we are hoping to transition to more solar. Uh, on the other hand, as you may know, having spent some time in Costa Rica, we are really embracing in some regards electricity, regardless of whether it comes from our grid here in Costa Rica or whether it comes from our own installations. And that's because Costa Rica historically has done such a good job of uh, producing all of its electricity using renewable resources. So the electricity that we do get via the grid is already coming from renewable resources that the Costa Rican government has invested in over the last many decades. So in the cooking world, for example, we have a variety of ways to cook our food. We recently invested in a, uh, in a couple of in induction stoves, industrial inductions that are electric uh, we've been cooking with biogas for 15 years. We have two biodigesters. All of our human waste around the main house goes into a biodigester, which produces methane that we pipe up to our kitchen and cook with. We have another biodigester that's powered by local cow manure. Um, we cook with wood. We have about six uh, rocket stoves. So we have a large array of alternative cooking options in our kitchen, but again, I think it's important to uh, note that electricity has been something that we've been embracing more. It's, it's coming from relatively clean resources. We have a, an electric oven now in addition to our wood-fired oven. Um, and um, yeah, these are areas that we're really always trying to improve in. Uh, I think the only reason we haven't done solar sooner is just because the the roof of our main house building needs to be replaced and we have uh, basically just been waiting to replace that roof so that we can um, design it and build it uh, to receive a little bit of extra weight in the way of, of the solar install. Um, so hopefully that, that was all helpful.
That's very good. Um, just give give people a little more insight about where most of that electricity comes from that is a, a, a I'll just call it a broadly a green source. I, I mean, I think I know the answer, but why don't you just tell the rest of the group who may not know that answer? Yeah, Costa Rica, um, it uh, generates electricity variety of uh, renewable resources. The main one is hydro. Costa Rica is a very rainy country, and it's a country that has very steep terrain, and makes it really perfect for hydro. So something like two-thirds of the electricity here in Costa Rica comes from hydroelectric projects, and certainly, again, acknowledging that there is an environmental impact um, from the dams um, is renewable. Costa Rica also has a very robust program uh, with wind as thermal between the three generators electricity. Breaking up a little bit, everybody. We'll, we'll, I'm sure because of this internet instability, which is, it'll come back here, I'm sure, in a second. So just to summarize, you said that, that it is a combination of hydro, um, wind and, and some solar, but that was the answer. Have you tried any uh, low-head hydro on your own property? Is that yet? Is that at all cost-effective, Tim? We have not. Uh, we have done the analysis now a few times. We have some rivers that run through our property, none of which are really close to our main facilities, and so. After doing the analysis, we decided that the, the beautiful areas that we would have had to um, basically put the infrastructure in uh, wouldn't be worth uh, the investment and the effort. Um, so short answer to your question is that the hydro potential that we have, we've identified as just being a little bit too far. The, the cable run would just be a little bit too far for it to be uh, worthwhile for us. On the other hand, solar is a slam dunk, really, uh, even though, you know, we get a lot of rain, there's still a lot of sun, and for us, it seems to be, out of all of the, the renewable choices, the one that makes most sense uh, from us. We don't have much wind, we have no geothermal potential, but solar, certainly, uh, with a fairly small investment, we could be uh, producing, you know, all or just about all of the electricity that that we're using. Changing tack just a little bit to uh, a different type of question. Who are one or more either mentors slash teachers that you have been impacted uh, by in your um, in your activities there at, at the at the ranch. Oh boy, that's put me on the spot, isn't it? Um, I I do love to read. Uh, we have an amazing library at the ranch. So many of the authors. I know that you're affiliated in some way, shape, or form with Mark Shepard. Certainly, he he comes up um, in my head as you ask that question. Um, we've had so many teachers come through here over the years that have inspired us and taught us. Um, it would be unfair 
uh, for me to, I guess, yeah. mention a few, but not others. But I guess uh, being on the spot, I, I'm thinking of Peter Kring. He's an agroforester who lives on the Caribbean side, who teaches at our uh, education center every year, uh, just doing a, a really fabulous job, kind of turning agroforestry into a, a profitable endeavor. He's got an amazing example called Finca La Isla on the opposite side of the country here. Uh, in the natural building realm, uh, we have worked with the Steen family, S-T-E-E-N, uh, Bill and Athena Steen are two pioneers in the straw bale and natural plasters world. We have become close friends uh, with their sons, in particular with Benito, who's an incredible natural builder who has brought us all sorts of new techniques and inspiration. Uh, Skip Dewhurst is a timber framer who 18 years ago uh, taught us the skills to build uh, using timber frame construction, mortise and tenon joinery, which is something that we've taken and run with. Um, uh, I guess I'll, I'll pull those names uh, out here first. And I recognize they were all male. As a male, I want to be careful not to uh, leave out all of the amazing uh, female role models that have been such an integral part of our success. And I could probably just answer this question for hours. We've been really fortunate and privileged to attract a lot of great people that are really interested in the work that we do and believe in the work that we do and have been willing to help hold our hands as we try to figure out how to you know, do um, something positive for the world with our project. So this is going to show a little bit of my bias, which you mentioned earlier that you've done a little bit of research on. But so you mentioned that that you probably are able to get as much as 95% of your cap caloric needs from somewhat local sources. Um, something I'm kind of proud of, but we could get all of our caloric needs very easily right from our ranch for about 250 people and there are about 10 of us that live here at any given time and there's only one reason for that i mean we have a lot of caloric sources we raise alpacas for example which are a great caloric source better than cattle and other kinds of ruminants we have deer native many of them in the area we have elk native we have I hate to say this, but coyotes and other things that could be caloric, but that's not that's not why. It's because of our aquatic systems. Um, we have put a lot of work into um, creating locally sourced aquatic systems. So we have bass, smallmouth bass, which are native to our area, uh, in one pond that's about three acres in size. There's about 11,000 of them at any given point in time that are all of edible size, which is about um, half a pound um, from a, a English standard. And it'd be pretty boring eating fish all the time, but they could provide all of our uh, caloric and protein needs uh, if we needed them to. So the bias is long uh, ahead of the question to the question, what have you done or what do you have aquatically either in streams 
ponds, whatever, that, that could be either caloric and or protein supplied. Great. Well, first off, congratulations. That's awesome. Um, and it might be worth saying also that I, I guess I could argue that we could provide all of our caloric needs as well. And one of the reasons we don't is as a hospitality center, as a an education center that brings people in and feeds them and houses them. Yeah. It is important for my wife who runs the kitchen to have a dynamic menu and not always be eating taro and cassava or yuca because certainly we we could, uh, but the variability uh, in the menu uh, probably wouldn't sit well for all of our clients and hence the the compromises that that I was alluding to earlier but to more answer your question um we have had uh, an aquaculture operation we uh as well as an aquaponics operation we have those both going simultaneously with tilapia uh, we've gotten rid of both of those it was earlier on in our development and we made some some mistakes in designing those and siting those. The main one with the uh, aquaculture pond was just that it didn't have uh, a secure source of water feeding into it in the dry months. We were fine for the eight or nine wet months and then in those dry months we would have to add water to it ourselves and that just wasn't a system that we felt was a model system for others to follow. The aquaponic system, very cool from the educational standpoint. It took a big pump to run. Very cool uh, how that can work. But again, for us, trying to be an education center that highlights practices that we feel are model practices. We were paying more for the electricity to run that pump than the value of the food that we were getting out of that system. And so uh, we took that out. We are currently uh, now looking to build another pond um, because we do feel like this could be low-hanging fruit for us. This is a potential source of, of protein, um, which we feel has uh, a lot of potential where we are. Uh, we're up on a ridge, and so it does provide us with that challenge of basically always having fresh water entering into our aquaculture systems. So we're looking into ram pumps, we're looking into building a dam, we're looking into options that will allow us to bring water up essentially to where we are so that we can both uh, farm fish but also be able to irrigate our orchard spaces uh, in the summertime when it's very dry where we are. And by the way, keep your eyes open because I think in the next little bit like battery technology is, is improving, not as fast as we'd like it to, but you're going to see some very efficient and cost-effective low-head hydro solutions. So taking water from a, a distance down in the valley from where you are up on the ridge and, and then using wind power or solar or others and then moving it up, but then getting your power um, from the um, from the, the hydro um, as it's consistent, you know, which then you'd have that pond draining itself down. So you'd create your own stream um, from the pond down to where you held water, maybe off, you know, off site from where you needed the power. 
So I just keep keep your eye on that. I think you're going to see some some advances that occur there. Definitely um, will. Yeah, you're so fortunate to have the climate and everything. I mean, one of the real attractions for me to Costa Rica was still is that other than the earthquakes that he mentioned earlier and and in a, a little bit of the country where there's volcanic activity, um, Costa Rica has probably one of the more forgiving weather systems in the world. They're, they don't have hurricanes that go through there uh, very often. They don't get tornadoes like we do in places in the U.S. Um, they, you know, the old saying is it's, it's 80 degrees and 80% humidity uh, more than 80% of the time. <laughs> um, so there's the Pura Vida pure life and living and it's very cool i mean very very awesome from a from a uh, climate perspective so. yeah yeah we do feel quite fortunate no doubt about it um you know it takes a while for most north americans to get used to that heat and humidity but certainly as our bodies change and are able to adapt um yeah the more that i i am here the more i realize that um we're lucky that we ended up here and I didn't 20 years ago realize all of the benefits that I'm now um, experiencing as uh, you know, a Costa Rican citizen now living here. There are a lot of benefits to Costa Rica. It's by far, a, you know, by far, you know, not a, a perfect country, um, but yeah, a lot of the attributes um the government's commitment to the environment relative to so many other countries really is admirable and i think there's a lot that other countries could learn uh, by taking a close look at the way costa rica manages its natural resource base and takes care of its people it's uh it's an extraordinary extraordinary place to call home this this stat's probably wrong everybody but i at least it's close Really, only two economies in the world of any scale that have no military. Uh, mm -hmm. Switzerland's one, and Costa Rica is the other. And um, and and then a question from the audience: Alicia said, on the being on the Pacific Rim, I guess there's a huge concern about earthquakes. And you did mention, um, tell us about the earthquake and what what's the chances that an earthquake could really you know, cause either harm or huge physical damage where you're at. Yeah, you know, who knows? <laughs> um, we do get, you know, the, the ground shakes a lot here. We're part of the ring of fire where I moved here from Seattle. Similarly, I think, you know, we got some big shakes up there. In fact, there was a 7-0 or 7-1 when we lived there over 20 years ago. Um, so certainly it's it's a possibility. But that said, at least where we are, it's a very rural place. All of our buildings are single story buildings. They're quite lightweight. The roof is the light metal roofing. So certainly we could get a big one that does a lot of damage, um, but based on where we are and um, the geography, I, you know, I feel like we're in a pretty safe place. Certainly, you know, the ground could shake real hard one of these days and knock down buildings and even with the uh, reinforced concrete foundations that I was talking about before and really well-built structures, 
if there's an earthquake big enough, well, certainly it could bring even the, the best engineered buildings down. But um, that aside, um, I'll take my chances. It's a, it's, a good, it's a good place to be, regardless of the earthquake potential. Is there a, um, here's another question from our audience. Is there a, a spiritual component to your intentional community side of what you're doing? I would say definitely, but perhaps not in the conventional sense. I'm not exactly sure how to word this. We're, you know, we're, we're not generally, uh, at least at this stage of the game, like offering workshops on meditation or nonviolent communication, some of these practices that we do incorporate into our day-to-day, -day, but not into our uh, course calendar. Um, also, you know, spirituality can be defined a million different ways. Some people find, um, you know, their sweet spot for spiritual practices on a soccer field, or others find it on their yoga mat, or others find it in a quiet room. And so it is, I think, an important component to our work, but it might look a little bit different perhaps than uh, a type of place that would be catering to uh, people looking for like spirituality type uh, offerings. Um, I think we're maybe our reputation is a little bit more, I don't know, pragmatic or industrious, certainly. You know, my wife meditates daily. She has a daily yoga practice. I think she considers herself quite spiritual, but um, I don't have that daily practice. I maybe as I alluded to before, I, I uh, find my spiritual practice best achieved on on a field full of uh, sweaty bodies and running around and bumping with people playing ultimate frisbee and soccer and volleyball. That's just where I am able to find balance in my life uh, personally. And perhaps this is a good time to just interject the fact that the ranch has done a lot of work over the last 10 years or so in trying to bring balance to the day-to-day. -day. If you have a land-based project like we do, like you do, you, you know, the list of things to do really never ends. You know, it'd be easy to work every day, 14 hours a day, no problem. That, that list will still be as long as it was uh, in the morning after one of those full 14-hour days. And so, we finally smartened up to the idea of really striving to bring balance to the day-to-day -day for all of us that call this home, for the apprentices that come and live with us for a year, even for the people that just come and spend a week for a workshop. We really have incorporated a lot of changes into our day-to-day -day schedule that basically allow us to pursue whatever it is that you would like to pursue to, to, to be balanced to to be grounded and for some again that's a meditation practice for others it's hanging in a hammock and taking a nap perhaps reading a book uh, going down to the river and swimming going to the soccer field i think for all of us it looks a little bit differently so um, by creating that time in our day i think it and the expectation that people that are part of our community can take that time and use it how they would like, how they feel is best for them. Um, I think the the spirituality piece kind of 
works itself out because we have intentionally created those spaces and those times for people to um you know to use as they feel is best for them so um this is one that again is very near and dear to my heart and i have four times the the uh the number of children as it sounds like you than you have i have four and compared to your one but your one is now getting old enough or but you're starting to see where she might be gravitating post you know post her time when her parents are at least helping make decisions for her what is your thoughts about whether she's going to embrace what you're doing um, for a longer period and what is that more broadly about what um, you're seeing from youth and, and now before you answer it i will tell you that all four of my kids love to come here and they would say that if there was some catastrophic event occurring or whatever that that as quick as possible they would get here um, but not one of them lives anywhere close to the kind of lifestyle that that my wife and i choose to embrace and and i think they were somewhat dis uh interested because of it and and they've become urbanites or or suburbanites or even in one case a rural but very more traditional <laughs> in their living and mine are older yeah. obviously and so yeah still it resonates uh, a lot with me my daughter's 14 uh she's grown up in a small rural community her whole life been surrounded by the types of personalities that are attracted to the type of work that we do um so yeah, a lot of exposure. She's been in the public school system in our small community since uh, she entered school. Um, so she has this, I think, pretty cool life, kind of having all of her friends in the community, going to school, having that very rural Tico life, but she comes home to a vibrant, robust education center that focuses on sustainability education. And so I think it's a pretty unique uh, upbringing um you know she walks to school when she graduated elementary school and started high school her three minute commute got cut to a minute and a half commute um she plays on organized soccer every day of her life she goes to the waterfall three or four times a week she spends a lot of time in the woods but she's also a kid that likes to look at TikTok and and um you know is attracted by all of the lights and bells and whistles that are out there in society these days that are vying for um our attention and our time and so i certainly don't have an, an answer i don't know what she'll do um we will support her whatever that is we are kind of getting into that stage now where we're wondering what she's going to do when she graduates from high school. She goes to a, a five-year high school. It's a rural high school. So she's in ninth grade. She only has two more years after this year. And we're, we're talking about what next steps will look like. It could be going to school in the States. It could be going to school in Costa Rica. It could be a gap year program. It could be doing something alternative. Um, but 
kind of like you said, the ranch will be there for her if she would like to take the reins, if she would like to live there, if she would like to develop an offshoot business. But at this stage, it's not something that we're pressuring her to do or even expecting her to do. What we're trying to do, hopefully, is just provide her with a well-balanced uh, childhood so that when she does get to the age when she's making decisions, and in fact, she already is. She cooks for our community, uh, which is a large community, at least once a week. She's an amazing baker. Uh, she's had chores uh, already now for years. Um, but whether she decides to call this life or just call it home or both uh, remains to be seen. And I'm very open to what that looks like. I, you know, a part of me hopes that she comes and stays, but uh, I am also realistic in that she'll have to spread her wings at some point, I think. And uh, once she does that, that will influence who she becomes and what she gets jazzed about and what gets her out of bed in the morning. And if what it is that we're doing is what she decides is what she wants to do, fantastic. And if not, you know, we'll be there to support her uh, every step of the way. But it has been a sensational place to raise her um, up until now. And I think it'll continue to be that type of place. But yeah, she'll she'll need to go and, and experience uh, the world a little bit differently than she has the last 14 years. And um, I'm looking forward to see how it all unfolds. And certainly as I am talking, I'm getting a little bit, you know, a little bit sad in the heart because uh, of course I don't want her to ever go away as her dad, but I also realize that that is just part of being being a parent. What about the natives that are her age or around her age, let's say from 10 to 18, because she'd been around, she would have been around those. What what are their futures? What do their futures have for them? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, most of her friends, uh, you'd consider, I guess, coming from low-income families, many of them are, are darker skin. So it's, I think, an amazing opportunity for her to grow up in this way um there is a high school now in the in the community where we live so educational opportunities certainly uh, are increasing and the desire to go on to college certainly continues to grow by that demographic in our community on the other hand um, we support the educational institutions in our communities in many ways but there's also an important piece of our work that tries to encourage youth to stay in our town. Part of our work has been to create opportunities for young people that want to continue to call Mastatal and the surrounding communities home. And so we are always trying to identify opportunities for families, for young kids to be able to uh, plug themselves into small businesses that they might be able to start. And this has been one of the magical pieces of living where we do. We, there were no there were no formal businesses in our community in 2001 when we moved to Mastatal. And now if you come into our community, you see signs uh, all around for, um, you know, organic chocolate farm, uh, small restaurant in town, guiding services bird watching tours, natural history tours, a small hostel up the road. 
and on and on. And these are businesses that have been started by, you know, people that were in elementary school or high school when we moved in in many cases. And uh, it's been a really cool evolution to be a part of as opportunities continue to grow in our community, watching the different families be able to identify uh, the opportunities and then build uh, family-run businesses around that. So I think the future is bright for a lot of these kids. Fact of the matter is that still a lot of rural kids don't want to stay home and that's another part of it and that's okay. Some kids want to go to college and become engineers and become teachers and certainly um, we support those uh, aspirations and dreams too, but it's also really important for us to create a local economy that allows people to stay uh, if and when they would like to. That is all very cool. You guys are doing great stuff that way. Um, we're getting close to the top of the hour. We're very respectful of our speakers and we, we try to keep our podcast sessions to an hour. If any of the audience has questions, I've asked several of them. They're most of the ones that, that you folks have asked. Any of our staff, we've got a bunch of our staff here today. They were very excited to hear you speak with you, Tim, or hear you speak. So if any of you guys have got questions, especially those of you that, that are staff that would allow yourselves to be unmuted, you can just ask Tim directly. Um, and um, I think I have an answer, by the way, to that uh, is where is, is Costa Rica where Jurassic Park was filmed? Uh, maybe I don't. Do you know the answer to that, Tim? I, it's, it's an interesting. I think point. it was on Isla, Isla de Coco, which is a national park off the Pacific coast here. Not 100% sure, but I think that I have heard that that was filmed on Isla de Coco. Don't, don't hold me to that, though, please. That's very cool. By the way, there's amazing surfing all up and down from Punta Gorda, farther south, through that area. I have one question, and this is Arif. So uh, I see that a lot of people are holding these certificates you have. So that means you certify people. Is there any uh, like government body which kind of aggregates that, or like any of that, or it's just you? Yeah, it depends on the certificate that you're referring to. We just finished a Wilderness First uh, Responder Certification class, for example, which is a 72-hour wilderness medicine training for people that are interested in doing a bit more than wilderness uh, first aid, but not able to commit to, say, a wilderness EMT or paramedic program. And there is a, a governing body there that recognizes the different uh, organizations that offer that type of certification. So in that case, the answer is yes. Uh, in the case of the permaculture certification, uh, the 14-day class that we offer a few times a year, there is no governing body that oversees that type of certification, which I think for some is a positive and others a negative. Uh, there's always variety of ways to look at these uh, topics and I think permaculture by many of its followers is kind of considered to be a, more of a horizontal uh, structure uh, essentially it being more open um, less hierarchical um, but certainly that does allow for 
really just anybody to come in and offer these types of certification programs. And so I think a lot of what students should be looking for who are interested in doing a program like this is the reputation of the organization that's offering it, as well as the reputations of the teachers that are providing the education. Um, so I, I think I'll answer it that way. So some of the certifications, yes, others, uh, no. So it just depends on, on the program. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't touch on this one at all. I have, I just about asked it, but this comes from the audience. Um, how is the healthcare in the area that you're that you're in? Yeah, I mean, I think healthcare here is amazing. Um, it's not perfect. Um, you were referring to earlier about Costa Rica being one of just a handful or two countries in the world that actually does well economically uh, and does not have a standing army um, based on the fact that Costa Rica does not have a military. Uh, they have been able to, I think, put a lot of that saved money into their healthcare and their education systems. Um, pretty much everybody has access to healthcare here. Um, the large city hospitals are crowded. Um, if you're used to kind of private hospital care in the U.S., the hospitals that are part of the public uh, part of the healthcare system, you know, are busy and perhaps, uh, you know, staff is overworked. But in general, I think that healthcare is really far superior to most of what I have had access to via health insurance in the U.S. in my time there. Um, I'm much more concerned about healthcare when I'm traveling uh, in the U.S. with family uh, compared to when I'm here at home, knowing that anytime anything happens to me, if I get sick, if I get hurt, um, it's really just a matter of walking into any clinic, uh, any hospital, and knowing that I'm going to be taken care of without an exorbitant bill at the end of my my visit. Um, so certainly, you know, just to acknowledge that it's not perfect for um, optional surgeries, for elective surgeries, for non-urgent type of procedures, there are wait lists that are longer than people would expect to, to wait, let's say, in the U.S. healthcare system. Um, but that said, urgent care, uh, anytime you get sick, anytime you get hurt, you will be admitted, you will be taken care of, and you will not have a bill at the end of the end of the day that will potentially bankrupt you uh, or your family. Yeah, that's a, by the way, from a, a, a person from the states who was fortunate, and all the times I've been there, I've never needed that kind of care. I've been around others that did though. And we're talking tourists that just came to Costa Rica, and they're not treated any differently than than the natives are treated. So it's not. It, it, this isn't just a. Uh, something that Tim's talking about for just those that are citizens and such. It's broad. And then uh, you should all know that there are a lot of U.S. young people who plan ahead, and it takes the planning, as Tim said, and go to Costa Rica to have babies because, because of the cost, really. The fact that you know you're going to get better care 
and, and are not going to have, even with insurance and deductibles, the kinds of costs that you'd have here in the U.S. So a little bit like Mexico is that way on the border of the U.S. There's a similar kinds of uh, circumstances there. But I think Costa Rica is considered maybe safer and, and really high quality. In, yeah. in, the big, in the bigger cities, at least. So, yeah, there's a big medical tourism and dental tourism industry here. And I think yeah. one other thing I'll just add is that for people that, you know, might be concerned about the public health care system for certain procedures or in certain situations, there is a parallel private health care system here as well, which has um, hospitals that I guess are more akin to. A private hospital in the states they uh, are less crowded um, they feel more like what you would feel in a in a you know a well-funded hospital in the u.s so there are those options um, you can choose uh, to either go private or public based on based on your situation and let's end it with this because i don't see any other questions coming in tim give us your sort of final thoughts and how we've been showing your website and how can people find these programs that you're talking about other than let's say through your website if there's anything else any other way yeah yeah appreciate the invitation uh we have a great website we uh post to our blog at least a couple of times every month we try to share information freely as much as possible with people interested in the types of practices that we're engaged in uh, we're very active on social media. We have uh, a Facebook page, uh, an Instagram page. Um, I think we're launching maybe even a TikTok page at some point. It's uh, something that uh, other core team members are, are generally handling here, but we do have very active social media presence. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter just on our homepage. Um, but otherwise, yeah, we have a full calendar of classes coming up in 2024. We've been as busy as ever this year, and uh, we look forward to continue to uh, play an important and positive role in the small corner of the globe where we ended up calling home so many years back. Awesome. Well, and again, we've we've not met until today, but I, I hope we can get to know each other a little better. And and please know that if you're ever in the Colorado area, you're welcome to come here and visit and stay and do whatever else if you'd like. Um, and uh, I enjoy hosting you, or we would. And then also, he means it, everybody, that Costa Rica mentality is just something. I, one of the things that always impressed me is it's, only, it's, it's literally the only place I've been in the world, and I've been all over the world, where you can have a person living in a in a mud house in what would be considered lower income, but they're not homeless, they're living there, right next door to a five-star apartment slash hotel, whatever. And, the, and you can go out on the streets and play soccer or play um, uh, you know, a much more passive sort of uh, chess or checkers um, with a person that, that again is a whole different class quote than than you might be and yet you'd love it you'd enjoy it and you'd have fun doing it and uh, i just think that's costa rica that's sort of the, the mentality yeah so, well said yeah 
Well, Tim, thank you. Please say thank you to the rest of your family and your community for giving you a, a little time to be with us. And, and we wish you the best in everything you do. Thanks so much, Wayne. I'd like to extend an invitation to you too next time you're in Costa Rica to come by and uh, check us out in person. Appreciate I'd, the opportunity. I'd love to. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.